The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. As part of this sitting, I'd like to read you a ancient treatise on virtue, on sila, from the Theravada tradition. And uh, in the silence, in your quiet quietness of your mind or your heart, see if you can receive this and let it somehow enter you and register. Virtue should be thought about as follows. Even the waters of the Ganges cannot wash away the stain of hatred, yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even yellow sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. Virtue is the unique adornment of good people, surpassing the adornments cherished by common folk, such as necklaces and earrings. Virtue should be reflected upon as the basis of rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, punishment. Virtue should be reflected upon as praised by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse as the basis for safety. Virtue surpasses material wealth because thieves cannot confiscate it, because it enables one to achieve supreme sovereignty over one's own mind. Virtue surpasses the sovereignty of warriors, kings, and priests. Virtue surpasses the achievement of beauty for it makes one beautiful even to one's enemies. It cannot be vanquished by the adversities of aging and sickness. Since it is the foundation for states of happiness, virtue surpasses such dwellings as palaces and mansions. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, Virtue is superior to troops of elephants, horses, chariots, and infantry. Thus, esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements, as the soil for the origination of all the Buddha qualities, the beginning, footing, head, and chief of all the qualities issuing in Buddhahood, one should guard diligently and thoroughly perfect virtue as a hen guards its eggs.
So hearing that in your meditation posture, for those of you who could, weren't too sleepy to hear it or something, uh, what what kind of uh, response did happen to you to hear that ancient treatise on virtue, the ancient Buddhist teachings? Yes, please. Oh. <clears throat> they push the button so I can like. I would say that what I was thinking of was um, I've heard some teachings about virtue before, and um, they've never really connected with me that much because it's a word I associate with something I should be doing that Mm -hmm. I'm not. But the conversation I had earlier with my friend over there, when she mentioned compassion as the antidote to anger, or an antidote to anger, I was sort of um, replacing the word virtue with the word compassion Mm -hmm, in my mind because... I realized that for each of those instances that were um, exampled there, that it worked, you know, for me at least, Mm -hmm. that it was compassion that was the virtue that would be valuable and would protect me from all of the sort of negative things that I might might do. Mm -hmm. I think think that's very nice. Yeah, the... uh, I used the word caring this morning and kindness as uh, considering as one of the synonyms for virtue. Or <clears throat> what I said earlier was that uh, all the six words that I gave there early in the morning, that all of them can pr- end up producing the same behavior. And so just like virtue would produce certain kind of ethical behavior, so kindness and caring would bring forth the same so that for, that for you to connect compassion as the source or the root for all this is great. Fantastic. Thank you. Can you pass it back? <clears throat> Never say your name. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Gil. That was extraordinarily powerful. I would love to have a copy of that. Uh-huh. Powerful because it gives us permission to aim and um, hope and um, aspire to be virtuous as a replacement for what society says is is what we should be aspiring to which are the palaces the mansions the necklaces so to it's so powerful to have a different image of what our wealth and our jewels Mm -hmm. should be great great Thank you. And also uh, another powerful thing is to think about how we can replace the things like anger and, and with other things that work really well to to help us on the path. So Great. thank you. Thank very you. Much. Anybody else? 
So one of the <clears throat> one reason I wanted to read that was uh, to get a sense of a kind of a celebratory spirit or a, this high praise that virtue get, has given in this ancient text. That, uh, as far as you know, from my reading of it, uh, it kind of lacks um, a lot of uh, self-righteousness or judgments or kind of uh, uh, admonitions that you should do this. It was more like uh, stressing the positive qualities, the benefits that come in a very grand way. That this is not a way to diminish yourself or get less from life. This is how you can be rich. <laughs> this is how you can really get some of the best qualities going for you. It's, a str- it's, a, it's an enhancement of the quality of our life, not a diminishment of it. And uh, to, to get this ancient kind of celebration of that, I thought it was quite beautiful. It is um, uh, available on the, I think the bottom, the second page of the handout, there's a link uh, in the IMC's uh, webpage. There's an articles page. In that article page at the very bottom, there's a link to the Parami pl- uh, page. In the Parami, there's all these, um, the reflections are there that are handed out. And also, there's a, for each Parami, there's a set of quotes from the suttas. So if you'd like to, uh, that quote, I think, is the first one. But if you want to read the quotes, um, other quotes about the virtue there, you'll find them there on the website. So um, I would like you to have another discussion. And um, the question is uh, how to do it. I think what we'll do is, um, I think this, uh, the number four groups of four I think works pretty well and uh, what I thought uh, to do is um, actually I think that um, we'll do it this way so there's Let's uh, do groups of four, and then um, I think there'll be no let's do groups of four, and then there'll be left over. I think one group of three, and I'll assign them. Or you, you, those the three of you will find a group to join, so it would be three groups of five. <clears throat> so why don't we count off this time, and then so up to five, up to four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Mary? Four. One, two. No, that's, that's, that, I, I, I did it wrong. The groups are going to be too big this way, of course. 
So uh, what we need is, um, uh, I think we need up to six. So let's see if we do that. So that works better. So let's, try, let's do it again. Remember, remember, remember your new number, okay? And then here, Sarah. That's, I think that's great. So, um, so can all the ones gather over in this corner here? All the twos gather in the corner there. All the threes can gather kind of in the middle, right there, right in front of that exit door. And all the fours can gather up there on the stage. And all the fives can gather here. And the sixes can gather in the outer hall. Maybe bring some chairs out there. Okay, so let me give you the instruction. And um, if, uh, if you want, you can think of this as a uh, f- uh, fun, well-meaning, you've already won contest. <laughs> Around virtue. <laughs> To see uh, who can come up with the best, which group can come up with the best answer. So you're each going to uh, be given a, um, there's, there's uh, two questions, and uh, each group's going to be given one of those questions. So it'll be a number of groups with the same question. And then, um, and then see if you can, in a, in a you know, nice way, discuss the question and explore different aspects of it and and see if you can come up with a succinct answer to the question. And then when we gather, one of you from your group will provide the answer. Make sense? Okay. So, so I'm going I'm to pass out these slips of paper with the question. So when you get it, you can read it uh, in your group to yourself.
Yeah, it'd be good to have the mic. So our question was, what is the most profound way that ethical behavior is beneficial to oneself? And what are the most profound, what is the most profound way it is beneficial for others? Angie, do you want to provide the answer? So uh, we saw that these two, you want us to also answer at the same time? Yeah, answer okay. too. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, these are kind of... Um, United, they kind of answer each other. That um, the most profound way that ethical behavior is beneficial to oneself is because it's beneficial to others, and we are constantly in relation with others. And so, if the people around us are benefiting, we are benefiting. And the most profound way that ethical behavior is beneficial to others is because it's benefiting us um, personally, and thus we are bringing benefit to them. Great. Maybe we can hear the other, the other groups that had that question. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so we had the, the same question and uh, basically the same answer, except ours was simpler, harmony. No, not harming? Harmony. Harmony. Okay. Right, so let's have so that we had one or two people, other groups with the same question. So what, over here, that. Many, of course, things we had to narrow it down, but um, freedom, it contributes uh, being... Oh, same, same question. question. You, you, um, can, you can read it again. Yeah. What is the most profound way that ethical behavior is beneficial to oneself? Because it contributes to a sense of freedom, it sets the stage for freedom. Great, thank you. And in what is the most profound way it is beneficial to others is it's it's a this is all a reassuring framework that leads to some. We first said the word predictability, but decided that that was too narrow. Anyway, I'll go ahead and say it: a sense of predictability, the sense you can count on, be counted on, and that leads to trust. Mm, trust. Uh-huh. Thank you. You also have that question, right? Mm-hmm. So let's. Put the, there's a mic right there. So we had. Is it on? Yep. Okay. We had the same question. What is the most profound way that ethical behavior is beneficial to oneself? And um, similar to you guys, it was a freedom of heart and mind leading to peace. So um, just not being up in our chatter and questioning ourselves and things like that. And then um, what are the most profound ways it's beneficial for others? Um, as we behave ethical, ethically, we create a holding space of trust and, you know, safety. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. Thank you. So I guess there are two groups that had the other question. So do you want to read yours? And
Yeah. Um, our question was, questions were, what is the most important condition that supports ethical integrity? And the second question is, what is the most important role of mindfulness in supporting ethical integrity? So in answer to the first question, we came on honesty. That you have to be honest with yourself to recognize what's the appropriate um, behavior in a particular situation and to look at yourself critically and honestly to see that you are, in fact, behaving uh, in an appropriate way. Um, and then the answer to the second question, the role of mindfulness, um, we came up with the term mindfulness is a tool for examination of those kind of conditions for your behavior, including honesty, to make sure that you are, in fact, um, exa- you, that you examine those things you're, you're, um, and be sure that you are honest. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you. Is there any other mic nearby? So we had the same question. What's the most important condition that supports ethical integrity? And what's the most important role of mindfulness in supporting ethical integrity? And I think the consensus was that this might be cheating a little, but basically a wise, compassionate mindfulness is the most important condition that supports ethical integrity. And that the role of mindfulness in supporting ethical integrity was like a base. Like, say, you're trying to make a pyramid. Uh You know, you have a base with a flat top, and that is our mindfulness of our actions and the consequences of our actions on others. And on top of that goes the compassion for ourselves and others and the wisdom and discernment to make the best decision about what is the most ethically correct um, action in this in this instance, and then you get your little top of the pyramid, which is the most ethically correct mm-hmm. choice for that question. Very nice. Thank you. Yes? What is the most important condition that supports ethical integrity? So did we get all the, all the groups? Is that right? Great. So, um, um, partly I wanted to have you kind of engage in those questions because uh, I think that, uh, uh, I'm assuming that all of you are ethical. I think that's a fair assumption, fairly ethical people. And uh, all of you probably have a fairly good understanding of some of the principles of ethics but that uh, sometimes um, uh, spending time uh, exploring, thinking, discussing, grappling with something that maybe seems kind of common sense, like, you know, I basically live an ethical life, makes it go deeper and richer and kind of makes it kind of fill out for you in a way that uh, becomes uh, fuller for you in your life or more relevant or more alive for you. So I hope that something like that uh, has been the case in having this discussion. 
And I hope that it, give, it demonstrates to you um, the value of being in discussion around something, uh, these kind of Dharma topics, and especially around virtue. Um, it's, uh, I think it's not frequent enough in our society that people have conversations about virtue in a supportive, helpful, non-judgmental way. And I think it's pretty special that, uh, that we could do that here today and to do it. Um, so anyway, I hope that that was nice for you. Before we take a break, do you have any comments about that that you'd like to say or any, anything you want to ask? In our discussion about ethics, um, you know, we like to think we're ethical and maybe just as you say, we don't go deep enough into some really questionable areas such as euthanasia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all can say we won't kill, but, but, but. Yes. And then um, I brought up the thing of somebody who is a homeless person, very hungry, and in a grocery store and took a, took a bar, a, a candy bar to eat. I mean, how, you know? <laughs> so it does go, no. you know, it, it does go deep, you know. I think so. And I think that... Uh, <clears throat> Those, those two examples are great examples of where I think it's useful to have rich discussions about it all. Because uh, rather than having a simple... Sometimes when people talk about ethics or these kinds of issues, people rush to judgment or rush to a simple answer. And I think it's really helpful to kind of expand and hear all the different sides and all the different issues before coming to a personal decision of what to do around that. And Because uh, it's a rich area. It kind of t- Both those... It touches all kinds of different, like threads, touching all kinds of different corners of our hearts. And so to allow these questions and the discussion to touch different parts of our hearts, our sensitivity, our empathy, our, our uh, inner sensibilities, I think it makes it richer. And um, so this, kind of, you know, this was kind of like a little tip of the iceberg kind of discussion that could go a lot further. And... <clears throat> I was just wondering what your view is on euthanasia. My view of euthanasia. Um, I think sometimes it's the most compassionate thing to do is to allow someone... Well, it depends what you mean by euthanasia. Uh, If euthanasia means uh, uh, putting an animal or putting a person to death, dying, killing someone... I think that uh, it's not a very, uh, it's, it's pretty rare that that's useful. An animal is different than a person in my mind. So to, to help someone not suffer terrible suffering seems like it's a compassionate thing. But I don't know if I'm capable of doing the act. So I can, I, can, I can kind of, my mind, my heart goes, oh, this is terrible. I don't know if like, I, this is, we should put this animal out of its misery. <clears throat> but I don't, I, don't <clears throat> I never, haven't been up to, <clears throat> to do it. It's up to me. I don't know if I'm capable. So, <clears throat> so that's an issue. The, um, in terms of human beings, I think also, um, <clears throat> someone I knew, uh, uh, was sick and old <clears throat> and uh, was determined to take his own life. And um, 
I had long conversations with him and and tried to to talk that there are other ways, other possibilities. But uh, he had a kind of a, a circumstance, life circumstance, where in all kinds of ways it seemed like it doesn't didn't make sense what he wanted to do. So at some point I felt like I couldn't say anything anymore. <clears throat> and um, in the end I wasn't needed, but uh, I didn't think what he was doing was the best solution for him. But if he had asked me to assist him, to have been, to be there while we, well, I would have accompanied him, and I would have accompanied him. I wasn't I wasn't going to judge him. I would have accompanied him. Um, and when it comes to my, you know, I don't know. You know, I can't know for myself what's going to happen. It's unimaginable. The suffering can be so unimaginable. You know, the pain that we're going through. <clears throat> so I don't know what my decision would be. But I could imagine that at some point I could decide. Uh, Assisted suicide or self-administered suicide might be, might feel like the wisest, most compassionate choice. You know, but as you see, as I kind of struggle to find an answer here, I don't have a clear answer myself. Um, you know, to me, uh, I tend to be situational in my ethics. So I think I really have to be in the situation to see it to really know such deep questions. And that's why kind of reflecting on it, thinking about it, so we're ready to explore the question when it comes to a real, when it becomes a real issue, is important. Thank you. Uh, I think in in Buddhism, um, you you know, I think it's living the examined life. You know the old saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. I think Buddhism is kind of the examined life on steroids. I mean, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think of the um, the precepts and the paramitas as uh, like a tool to use, like you use a hoe in the garden if you're going to plant something. Um, something else I was going to say. Oh, I think one thing that encourages me... Um, with thinking about ethics, is I read this column called The Ethicist. It comes out once a week in the paper. And it's not like I agree with him. You know, it's like people write in letters. They're usually two or three letters with different things. But I think he really does look at it from different points of view. You know, you say this, but what about this? And, and in a sort of broader sense, it's comforting to me that somebody's thinking about it that much. And it makes me feel kind of encouraged. Great. Lovely. Thank you. Um, I think you were trying over here. Why don't you pass? No, okay. <laughs> right here. Yeah. I think it's, for me, it's um, one thing is um, to have ethical standards and a set of values that are dear to me. And a, and a different thing is to actually be in a situation and apply them. And, you know, it takes really a lot of mindfulness and practice to um, shrink the gray areas. Because that's the gray areas that I'm struggling. Right. There are no gray, gray areas, or there are maybe very little gray areas in reality, but for me, there are still more gray areas. Uh-huh. Like, you know, if, even if you li- read the literature during the war, there is ethics there too, but, you know, the fear factor is tenfold, and it's much more difficult to apply the ethics. And in a situation like here now, during the political storms we have, 
I mean, it's, it's one thing to have ethics and another one to actually apply. So, so one of the one of the important roles that mindfulness has, or the examined li- examined life has, is in terms of ethics, is to uh, be uh, very skilled at recognizing what motivates your choice, your decision. And uh, is a decision based on fear? Is it based on greed? Is it based on avoiding discomfort? Is it based on uh, approval, you know, the idea of being approved, getting approved from other people is quite deep in human beings. We, no one, no one will admit that they're looking for approval for their ethical decisions. But you know, just very subtly, we kind of tune into what the people around us are doing, what they want, or what's expected, and it can have an influence on us. And uh, so, the mindfulness can help us look at our motivations, and that can. Uh, uh, um, have a big influence on which direction we go because at some point um, it's not just the ethical the choice we make in the ethical issue but we realize that the the motivation is ethical as well or unethical the motivation is one we're proud of feel good about or the motivation is something we don't feel good about and so sometimes if we rush to to a philosophical judgment about what's right and wrong but haven't investigated our own internal motivation uh, we've missed a very important part of the picture. So, yes, there are gray areas, but perhaps there's less gray areas if we study our motivation. Um, something that just came to mind while you all were speaking was, I don't know if this is true in the Buddhist tradition, but... I feel like we can only judge our own, we can only be in charge of our own ethical motivations. In other words, it's not really our job to judge someone else's um, ethical actions or ethical choices. And when we are called upon to judge someone else's, like if someone puts us in front of a, or in a jury, I mean, the best thing that we can do is put ourselves in that person's shoes, you know, and say, if it were me that had done this, would it be ethical or unethical? Because I just think there's a lot of danger in spending time, I don't know, judging other people's ethical actions because uh-huh. really it's us that we need to be in charge of, I right? I agree. When, uh, I, in many ways, I, I agree with you. The, um, you can pass it to Kate then while I say something here. <laughs> the, um, I love this. There's a... Buddhist monastics have a lot of rules they have to live by. Um, and uh, like uh, male monastics have 227 rules. There's a lot to mem- learn, the rules, all their little precepts. And, uh, and you could easily uh, uh, violate them. In fact, I was ordained as a monk when I was in Burma in the morning. And by mid-afternoon, this monk came over to me and said, you have to, f- you have to f- confess. Because you, I said, what have I done? <laughs> you know, four hours after my ordina- ordination, you know, I, I went to lunch and came back to my room, right? And what, did, what happened? And, uh, and, you know, so there was there's all these really subtle things. And so, so, you know, you wear these robes and they have this under robe, like a slip, and then you have a shoulder robe that you wear. And one of the rules was that the bottom of the hem of both of those have to be parallel, lined up. And my, my, the hem of my robe had slipped so I, and, and I thought, what? <laughs> you know, I was, I was doing my meditation, walking meditation. This guy came up to me and said, you have to confess. What? I was doing my meditation, you know. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So anyway, there's all these rules. 
but, but there's one rule that I love. So there's a lot of rule, rules about eating. So um, uh, monks, uh, nuns, they eat in bowls, a little bit bigger than this usually. And they would receive all this different food in it. They get you know, dessert and soups and the salads and cookies. And they all go into the same bowl. And, um, and one of the rules is you're not supposed to kind of separate it out and kind of, you know, pick, you know, you, you know eat the salad first and then you know, wait, keep the dessert for later. You're supposed to all be together. So that's a nice rule, I guess. That's a rule. But the nice one that I like is that um, the rule, you're not allowed to look in other people's bowls to see, to see how they're doing around that rule. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so, the, yeah, so you, you, no one can catch you, you know. So I thought the idea of like, leaving people alone. And the other hand, so I agree with in many ways, but also there comes a time in society, in situations, where we have to make a decision whether to trust someone. And then our, what are we going to base our trust on? And sometimes we have to kind of uh, use our best um, guess to look at their behavior, look at what they've done, measure it against what we think is appropriate, try to figure out their motivations, their conditions, circumstance, and decide what to do. And, uh, and uh, I mean, a lot of people now are grappling with this question around the, around the presidential uh, you know, uh, election, is uh, looking at behavior, and deciding, you know, whether it's just entertainment or whether it's more deep, something, something else. That you know. So, wh- wh- when do we make decisions? When do we judge? Or when do we make an evaluation? Because we have to. We're asked to make a decision, like an election, or we're asked to trust someone, or hire someone, or do something. When do we consider? When do we put something aside? When do we, you know? What do we, what, what, how, do we, how do we find our way with this? Um, it's not always easy. I guess, um, for me, I just draw a distinction between that word judge and understanding. Like, if I try to understand both candidates uh-huh. in the election and I evaluate which one I think will work the best for me, uh-huh. It depends how we use the word judgment, but I, t- I tend to avoid the word well as well. I think assessment or evaluation. Great, thank you. So, Kate. I want to go back to the animal thing that you yeah. raised. I take great... I'm, I'm very concerned about your choice of phrase, which about the animal was... Um, now it slipped my mind taking him out of his misery because for the three animals that I lived with for 20 years I didn't feel that at the end that I was taking anyone out of their misery I was offering them a peaceful death nice and I just that's a nice there isn't that much difference between the dog and the person great I appreciate that a lot. That's a nice to hear. And um, 
So, uh, you know, I, I could see myself, this is what I was trying to say, I could say what I was trying, the point I was trying to make was that I could see myself f- feeling something like that, but I don't know if I'm capable of assisting it, or making it happen myself. It has, it has to be by my own hands, like even giving, I don't know if, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm ca- constitutionally capable, uh, even if I felt that, um, so that someone, someone was asking me my personal relationship to it, so I was offering my personal, you know, I have some reluct- I had some reluctance to do that in this kind of setting, but I was, that's what I was trying to say. But I, I think what uh, rephrasing it that way, understanding that way, is a, it makes a profound difference in tone and approach. Yeah, that's a turn her speaking. Would you review again, or um, the the motivations? Like you mentioned, um, approval, greed, fear. Would you just go over the list again to help us help me? Uh, well, I don't remember everything I said, but uh, but there there's a lot of motivations that can be behind um, uh, our ethical choices. You know, so we decide what we do in a situation, and. Um, and so part of the function of mindfulness is to look deeply at what motivates us to do something, what's really going on. And so it's a relatively common for some, sometimes for people to um, uh, try to avoid discomfort, their own discomfort, and so they want something to go away because they're uncomfortable. And so they're not so much motivated by the ethics of the situation, they just want it to go away, you know, so I don't feel uncomfortable anymore. Or the, uh, a decision can be based on fear. And uh, the ethical evaluation can be based on fear as well. I'm afraid of something, I'm afraid of some people, therefore they must be bad or this has to go. And, you know, um, and um, this can be greed, you know, as a motivation for what I want, what's in it for me. Um, so, so there's a lot of, lot, of, a lot of motivations that can have um, uh, bias how we make our choices and decisions. And so if you only look at the, ethic, the um, abstract ethics of it, uh, you might miss the, the uh, underlying predisposition that we have towards it that might actually be more powerful or more, more influential than we realize. And sometimes, uh, so I, I was responding to Enrica who was talking about the gray area. And I agree that sometimes this gray area is complicated, some of the issues. And, where do, how do we do the least amount of harm uh, in different situations? And so it was in, in that context of responding to her that I said that an additional uh, consideration is to look back at our own um, uh, motivation because that might give us more clue what's going on for us. And, um, and there might be less of a gray area if we know clearly what our own motivations are, what goes on for us. Yes. Here's the mic. I was just reading in the paper today that Pakistan passed a law, and I forget what they call it, because it was duty-bound for uh, uh, the family if a woman had a relationship or did something, you know, the the family killed her. And it was accepted, you know, so... 
I'm thinking of things like um, there are certain groups that interpret the Koran in a very in, in a way that um, most people do not, and they feel they're right. So when it gets to a question of ethics, if you're following a tradition or if you're following what you think is the word of God saying yeah. this, um, you know, where does that go? That's you know, the rest of us can look and say, eek, but they feel they're very right. Yeah, so the, I mean, the, question, the question for anybody, for us, would be to see what, how other people live their lives and the ethics they, they base their lives on. And what, is our, what role do we have? Do we have a role to judge them? Do we have a role to stop them? What, what's our place? And, uh, and that's not necessarily an easy question. And uh, if they're halfway around the world, you know, how do we get involved? How do we say... Um, it's um, you know I, I don't uh, you know that you know to spend a lot of time thinking about other people. When do we interf- when, when 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 do we intervene? How useful it is for us to spend a lot of time thinking about what other people do when we have no influence on it to judge. To judge. But I think that um, um, you know. But one of the ways to th- consider, think of this is that to look at that as an example to help us become clear about our own ethics. So rather than keeping the focus on them, try to understand where we're at, where we are with it, understand ourselves more deeply, and what, where do we stand on that, and how would we be, if um, what would we do if our neighbors did that, or how do we feel about some of these issues, and what are some of the complex issues involved in uh, in one culture, considering the ethics of another culture. Um, you know, so I, I think that uh, to use it on self-reflection is probably more useful than spending a lot of time judging what's happening there, unless we can ha- unless we can have a role and have a place. Hi, I hope I'm not talking too much. Um, I want to talk about uh, when my dad died. I felt like we were in the hospital, and then he wasn't in good shape, so he got moved to the. Um, hospice part of the hospital and um, he couldn't really talk but at a certain point it looked like he was in more and more pain so we buzzed the nurse and said can you give her some more pain stuff and the nurse was also being very careful she said how do you know he's in pain so I did his, I said, he's like this <laughs> and that's how I look when I'm in a lot of pain so I think he's in pain okay and she said yes and then she said to my mom and me you know, if we give more of this type of medication, sometimes the person passes away. Sometimes person, and we said, that's okay. He did a living will, and he said, you can shorten my life if I'm in extreme pain in order to relieve the pain. So she said, fine, and she gave the medication. Um, it didn't exactly register with me, this is exactly what's going to happen, you know. But I, I felt like she, she was also thinking, you know, I'm here, I'm a nurse. I can give this, but I, I have to let these people know, and I have to know... That they think he's in, that they have a reason for him to be in pain. I mean, to give the medication. So I felt like she was trying to think ethically. Yeah. I, I have a, she has a certain definite power, and she wanted to make sure she was using her power correctly. Yeah, yeah she's probably ethically required to do that. Yeah, yeah, in a, in I think so. Yeah. But I, did, I was sort of like the next morning, my mom said, You know, I think that nurse knew he was about to die. <laughs> But we, we didn't exactly, we, we thought to go forward was fine. There was no question. And we said, everyone in our family understands this. You know, we're all, and that's what my dad wanted. We're all agreed. But, um, but now when I think about it, it's sort of, you know, she just, I mean, I, probably she's required to ask those questions, you know, if you're in a hospice. 
but also I think it's part of ethics. Like, what I'm in a role now. I have a certain amount of power yeah. in a role. How yeah. do I behave in a framework that's ethical? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, especially around morphine, it's, I mean, it's relatively common, I think, for, for uh, hospitals to quietly administer to, uh, enough morphine to let someone pass away. Mm-hmm. And it's considered to be a compassionate act. It's mm-hmm. usually done with a lot of care and consideration with the family and the kind of living will kind of thing and a variety of things that's done. So I think that uh, the, medical, the people in the hospital who are responsible for such things have probably spent a lot of time thinking about the ethics and are very wise, you know, concerned about it and mm-hmm. are careful. That's what I've seen. I've been around uh, people in hospitals where that was a decision. What? I've been in hospitals where the decision was made to give morphine. Um, back on the question of Pakistan and, and the treatment of women, I mean, I think it's a very real issue. Um, what I struggle with more is um, what I do with my opinion about how my children are raising their children or some topic like that, which is much closer and more difficult for me. Yeah, so the, I mean, again, as I said this morning, the fundamental principle for at least Buddhist ethics is uh, uh, to avoid harm. Avoid harm. So the question is, in, in terms of your, 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 your children, your relationship to them, uh, what, 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 are the, what are the forms of harm that you can, you can cause and what are the ways of being beneficial? And, um, and it, can be, it can get pretty complicated um, but you know, it involves judgment on my part, which may be appropriate or not. And but as you say, I mean, I think the bottom line is, I've come to the conclusion that it that um, you know it's probably rare that I should be offering intervention and advice to my children about their children. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's, poss- it's possible you're it's possible you're a hundred percent right, <laughs> and and. Uh, saying something <clears throat> will be seen as being interfering, as being disrespectful. That saying something will end up causing harm for the family, for the relationship, and and for those grandchildren for years to come because they can't see their grandmother. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the um, so you know so to really kind of take into account what causes harm here. What's the what are the consequences uh, of speaking up? What's the consequences of doing something? Um, and how to do something that's wise, and what's the right timing of doing something, is a part of it as well. When it's the right time, I sometimes will wait for years to give feedback to someone. Uh, that uh, some people might give very quickly, but I, sometimes I wait years until I feel that uh, timing is right. The, the door is open. Um, I just was thinking about um, the previous comment and I've had a lot of discussions with friends and family recently about speech, right speech and um, because it's something that I am not very skillful at myself Um, and so for some reason it popped into my head when um, the previous speaker was talking that there are ways to discuss with someone something that are not judgmental and ways that are not interfering. You know, um, 
I had a suggestion the other night, um, getting in trouble for talking too much, and um, the suggestion was, you know, you could ask a question, you could ask the other person what they think about something before you go ahead and tell them everything that you think about it, so that that way the conversation is more balanced, it's more respectful, and even if your intention is not to uh, look like you're telling them what to do, it can come across that way. So anyway, I I just wanted to make the point about right speech that um, sometimes it's the way we say something rather than what we're saying that can be make the difference between whether it's well-received or um, whether it causes harm. Yes, I agree. It's great. So thank you. So uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, I would like us to sit uh, in a circle as a way of uh, being more a sense of a community together. So when you come back, we'll rearrange the chairs and either all sit in the chairs or as you wish, but we get back. So we'll take 15 minutes. We'll start in here at uh, five minutes for three. <laughs> 